Uh, It's from 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 to 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray that God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Thank you very much. Um, as Dave's mentioned, I'm, my name's John Tyndall. I'm the father-in-law of the pastor. That's my main claim to fame these days. And uh, over the last few months, we've been looking at uh, the first epistle of John. It's, uh, uh, it's quite a difficult letter, I think. I, I, when I first became a minister, I longed to have my own pulpit. I was a, a circuit minister in Methodism. So in my first churches, I had six churches to care for. So, but then the time came when I only had one church and I was going to preach like Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great Bible expositors. I was going to preach verse by verse through a whole book of the Bible. And I chose one John. It was the greatest mistake I ever made. It was really hard for me and even harder for the people who are listening to me. Well, we've been working through one John and... Uh, We come today to the last few verses of 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that We may know the true one. We are the true one. We are in the true one. That is in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Well, it's a sad fact, I'm afraid, that um, ministers, even ministers, fail from time to time. And sometimes they fail in a really big way. And uh, that failure can be disastrous and can have a tremendous impact on their families, on their ministry, on the church, on their wider friends across the Christian world. I think of a minister that I met with a number of years ago over some pastoral matter. We, he came from where he was ministering and we came to a, 
a neutral place, as it were, and he wanted to talk about someone who was on his staff. And he was very, very critical of this man on his staff and thought that he was unfit for Christian ministry, wasn't gifted enough. Well, we talked about that for a while. But then, two years later, this very minister, who had been so critical of his staff member, he had to leave the ministry altogether because for years he'd been conducting an adulterous affair with the wife of one of his church members. He's no longer in the ministry. And it wasn't that he'd had a momentary uh, lack of judgment. He'd made some stupid mistakes and bad decisions. He'd not gone onto the internet and looked at pornography for a night. This was a habitual thing that had gone on for years. And it was the habitual and the persistent nature of that disobedience that causes us the most dismay. Now, as you read John's first epistle, you can't avoid noticing the tension between the presence of sin, even in the life of a Christian, and the life of righteousness. Uh, Our own Pastor Nigel's been, I think, brilliantly walking this line between uh, these, these two poles. We're aware of the importance of that line. We're all fragile and foolish. None of us can say, I am without sin. Certainly this person here. We feel that we so often fail in what we ought to be and what we want to be. But at the same time, God calls us to live a life of righteousness. To live a life that is pleasing to him. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians. So we sin. And we're sorry about that, but we determine not to let that become a deadly habitual thing we seek the help of god to know to not live in the realm to to settle down in the realm of sinfulness but rather to live and settle down in the realm of godliness that's the tension that you find over and over again in john's letter and he's writing john's writing to these churches as we've seen because a false teaching has begun a fake teaching has begun to influence church members. I learned some stuff about the five-pound note this morning that I didn't know. I'm going to go straight home and see if I can find a five-pound note. But this, this fake teaching was rooted in a movement that affected so many people in the early church. It became known eventually as Gnosticism. It's the same root word from which we get agnostic. Gnosticism. See, it claimed that spirituality, true spirituality, involved knowing stuff in your soul. But in the meantime, your body was a lost cause. Your body was corrupt. So you could just let your body do its own thing. If you wanted to get hammered on a Saturday night, well, that's what your body does. It's so as long as you've got this spiritual knowledge, doesn't matter what, you want to go down to the end of the town and engage in prostitution at the local pagan temple, it's all right, that's what the body does, just go on with it. And it's, sin was no big deal, it was just that the old physical body was doing its thing, but as long as you had this kind of spiritual knowledge in your soul, it, it would be all right, and then the day would come eventually when you could drop this old body and get on with the real stuff which was living like a ghost and a spirit somewhere. <laughs> So you can, you can understand that some of the early Gnostics found it impossible to believe that God's Son had actually entered into a body. Why would he do that? How could the pure and the spiritual, the Word, 
how could he join himself to something that was corrupt and decaying? And so they began to deny that Jesus had come in the flesh. And that's one of the things that the Apostle John is trying to deal with in this great letter. And that view actually is quite common today, especially not least in Islam. A Muslim evangelist once came to listen to me as I was preaching in a church in South Birmingham. And after the service, he did his level best. He he came straight to me. He did his level best to persuade me that, uh, that Islam was the truth. He wanted to convert me to his views. Now his main problem, one of his main problems was this idea that Jesus was God's son who'd come into a human body. How could the pure and holy son of God allow himself to be defiled by going to the toilet and emptying his bowels? He said that. That's unclean. It's not possible. It's so dirty. It can't be true. Therefore, Jesus could not have been an ordinary man Uh, He couldn't have been the son of God. He was just an ordinary man who was actually a prophet. Now we come to the last few verses of John's letter. We find the the apostle still battling away uh, these issues. He's compelled to define what a real Christian is. And he's passionate to show us the real over over against the fake. The ability to spot a fake is tremendously important, whether... It's a a monetary or other. I I am the guy who bought a Rolex in Thailand for five pounds. And two weeks after I got home, it broke. It was counterfeit. The world of art wants to know if that painting is actually a genuine Lowry. In the world of finance, was that stack of 50 pound notes printed yesterday in uh, Bill Smith's garage? Counterfeit. Now John says that this new thinking that's come in, this Gnosticism, is, uh, is not, only, not only makes fake Christians, it actually makes a fake Christianity. So it's no surprise that at the conclusion of this letter, this great pastor, theologian, returns to his main theme. It might be the last time he gets the opportunity to write a letter like this to the churches. So he's going to make sure the churches get the message. The Gnostics claim to have access to special knowledge that the ordinary Christian doesn't understand with their simple gospel. So here at the end of the letter, the Apostle John three times uses the phrase, we know. Now, he didn't speak in English, but if if he'd spoken in English, I wonder if if he would have put the emphasis on the we rather than on the no. They say they have knowledge, but we know. We know. Anyway, I can't prove that, so I'd better not major on it. But there are three we knows here in between verse 18 and verse 21. I'm going to look at them one by one. They point towards authentic Christianity. First of all, your behaviour must be God-honouring. Your behaviour must be God-honouring, verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is, who is born of God keeps him. And the evil one does not touch him. Now in the previous paragraph to this, uh, the Apostle John has given some pastoral advice on the situation in which a church member had slipped into habitual sin. What are we to think about such a thing? How are we to react? Uh, Was his behaviour, was this Christian's behaviour deadly? 
Or was it a temporary aberration? That man I told you about, who, uh, who was a minister, a gospel minister, who for seven years had had an affair with a woman in his congregation. He's now out of the ministry. Was that a deadly thing? Was it, was it a sign that he was actually spiritually dead? There was no life in him, that he wasn't a Christian? Or was it a terrible aberration? That's an important question. A famous preacher in central London who, who once cons- was once consulted over a man in his congregation who'd fallen into a pattern of sinful behaviour which was mainly uh, adulterous. And some people were writing him off. There you are, they said to this famous preacher. He was never a Christian in the first place. He had no life in him. It's, de- it's a matter of death, spiritual death. The preacher said, no, 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 I'm convinced that this man is a true Christian. I'm convinced that he has the life of God in his soul and he will return, he will come back. Well, sometime later this man was so depressed and so distressed about his life that he was standing on the banks of the Thames one Sunday evening around about six o'clock ready to throw himself into the waters of the Thames. And just before he jumped, Big Ben struck six. And at that moment, he remembered that the service at his old chapel, Westminster Chapel, was about to start, was soon to start. And he, he left the banks of the Thames and he went to the chapel and he sat in the gallery and there in the gallery, he came back to Christ. His life was restored and he turned back to Jesus. He could not continue in habitual sin. He could no longer ignore the life of God that had been placed within him when he first put his trust in Jesus. He couldn't go back to that life of spiritual death that had once been the world he inhabited. Something like that was at the heart of these verses in in verses 14 uh, to 17 in John's letter. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, here is someone who's fallen into sin. Is it a sign that he's, he's dead? It's, he's, he's, he's never known the life of God? Or is it a, a, a horrible aberration that needs restoration? So your behavior must be God honoring. So John continues his counsel on this matter. He's saying that once a man or woman has been born again, once they have received the life of God into their inward world, they will not be able to return permanently to the realm of death to the realm of sinful behavior, sinful patterns. They won't be able to settle back down into that old manner of life because they've been born of God. Now apparently the Greek construction, I don't understand the Greek particularly, but the Greek construction is a bit tricky here. Uh, And could could it be translated, um, if you look at verse uh, 19, Oh, verse, verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the, the one who is born of God keeps him. Some, some of, the, of the Bible translators translate that, that he is able to keep himself. Others are saying, no, 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 this means that the, 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 the one who is born of God, who is begotten of God, he's the one who keeps Christians. I think the, the, the second one is right. All true Christians are born of God, We have received new life by the indwelling of the Spirit as we've trusted the gospel. But for us, that's 
that's an experience of revolution or change. We've been changed from the inside out. But the Lord Jesus Christ, that's not been his experience. The Lord Jesus Christ has been begotten of God for all eternity. He is the only begotten Son of God. He has always been in the Father's presence. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Son of God is described in the Scripture as the only begotten Son of God. He never had a beginning and he will never have an end. We were once spiritually dead. We lived according to the sinful nature, but God has placed his life within us and we've begun to change. The Lord Jesus Christ has always, in all eternity, been filled with the life of God. And what John is saying here is that when you are born again of the Holy Spirit and you become a new creature in Jesus Christ, there is someone who is taking care of you. There is someone who is looking after you, who, who is eternally the life of God in himself. Uh, and it's, it's an amazing thing. You see, John says here that he keeps me. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. The Greek word for keep is the same word you would use if you took something precious and you gave it to a friend like a five pound note and you said, would you keep an eye on this for me? I could see that Dave was really concerned. He counted them all out, he counted them back in. Will you keep an eye on this for me? I have this here, it's an Omega watch. It was given to me by a friend. It's 18 karat gold. It's an Omega Deville. I would never have bought it, but a friend gave it to me. If I gave you this and said, would you keep an eye on this? I'd be, I would be thinking, now who? I wouldn't give it to him, but I'd give it to him. Would you keep an eye on this for me? You hand it to the person you think will have the honesty and strength to keep it safe and intact. Now, once you've received the life of Jesus Christ into your heart by the presence of the Spirit through faith in the gospel, there is someone who's keeping an eye on you. The only begotten Son of God He's making sure that that precious spiritual life he's put within you, he's, he's watching over you, he's keeping you safe until the day when you're safe eternally in his presence. Divine and magnificent uh, kingdom. And he says here, the evil one does not touch him, can't get his hands on him. The Bible is clear uh, that, that there's a spiritual realm in which evil operates. It's sometimes called the kingdom of Satan. The whole concept is rather scorned by the modern world, by modern culture. We're surrounded in our culture by a materialistic philosophy. You have matter, you have the laws of nature, the world of atoms and physics and chemistry. And there's nothing else outside of that. So the whole concept of an unseen dimension where there are evil spiritual personalities called Satan and demons, that all seems rather like Father Christmas in our modern world. But the Bible takes that spiritual evil realm for granted. It's allowed to exist for the time being. It hates God and his kingdom. It desires to destroy anything that would bring glory to God. It works by temptation and seduction. It would quite like to get its dirty hands on you and draw you away from Christ. If you're interested in reading about this, I would strongly suggest you'd, you try C.S. Lewis Screwtape Letters, 
They are imaginary letters written by a master demon to a junior demon advising him how to get his hands on people like you and me. It's brilliant stuff. If you like C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, you'll love Screwtape Letters. And what John is saying here is this. Once you've got the life of God inside you, there is someone who is keeping an eye on you and the world of evil and demonic and satanic cannot get its hands on you to take you away from Christ. But having said that, you don't become casual about sin. You don't treat it as a light and inconsequential thing. The life of God in you dislikes sin and loves right behavior. Well, you'd even like your thoughts to be pure, wouldn't you? You catch yourself with an impure thought and your conscience, your spiritually filled conscience, clips you around the ear and says, don't think like that. You send up a prayer of repentance to God. I'm sorry, I should never have thought like that. You commit to a local church, your time, your money, your sacrifice, your service, because it's his church, and you love him, and you want to serve him. And when you say or do wrong things, when you think bad and impure things, the life within you says, no, no, don't be like that. And you, you ask the Lord for mercy. It challenges you. Let me read to you what I, a, a, a phrase I came across this week from a man called Zane Hodges. What a great name, Zane. At the very moment that we are most humble by our sinful failures, and when we confess them, it is helpful to be confident that those failures have not really changed what we are as children of God. So when, when John is trying to deal with this fake teaching, he says, um, no, no, we know, we know that our behavior must be God-honoring because the life, the pure, holy life of God has come to take up residence in our experience. That's the first we know. Now be encouraged because the second two are briefer. The second one is your worldview must be kingdom shaped. We know this. Our worldview must be kingdom shaped. Verse 19. We know that we are of God and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. It's related to the first principle, of course, but it's a shorthand, I think, for two kingdoms. There's a kingdom which is from God and there's another kingdom which lies in the power of the evil one. Now it's important to pause at this moment to make sure that we are not guilty of what uh, the theologians call dualism. You could slip into a dualistic way of thinking about this. This is not saying that there are two equally balanced kingdoms the, the, the evil one and the good one, that are arm wrestling to see who wins in the end. It's not saying that. This is not uh, the force and the dark side. Oh, I felt a disturbance in the force. It's not that. Um, it's not that there are two equally opposed forces that are engaged in the cosmic struggle, and we have to wait and see which one will come out on top. No, no, what, what, this, what the whole Bible teaches is that God is the sovereign ruler over everything. This earth belongs to God. The world 
and all within it. He makes everything work after the purposes of his own will. His kingdom is certain to prevail. Uh, if I was a, a singing man, I would sing uh, uh, Handel's chorus, The Lord God Omnipotent Reigneth. But I, I, won't, I won't to spare you for that. Is it Handel? Yeah, the, the Lord God Omnipotent. Does anybody want to break out into song? The Lord God Omnipotent reigns. No, the kingdom of Satan uh, is temporary. It's allowed a brief period of power in the affairs of the world, but its fate's already being decided. The Lord Jesus Christ has already overcome the kingdom of darkness, particularly by dying in weakness upon the cross. And in the end, Satan and all his works will be destroyed and the kingdom will flourish, kingdom of God will flourish eternally in a new heavens and a new earth. So the, the, the battle's already won, the decisive battle's won, and the end is certain. Uh, the kingdom of Satan is surely going to be destroyed. But for now, and for a little while, the kingdom of evil is allowed to exercise its influence uh, amongst cultures and societies and communities of the world. It's not saying that Satan is in control of the world and God isn't. It's saying that God is in control but has permitted this temporary state of affairs. Let me just uh, read to you from Ephesians chapter 2 to remind you of, of, of what, how this works. The Apostle Paul says, you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world. You just lived according to the way the world lived. According to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children of wrath. We, we, we were dragged along by the way the world thought and behaved, and then there was something at work within us that was uh, sinfully inclined. We told lies, we were lustful, we didn't care about walking after God's way, and we were under the power of spiritual realm that was his anti-God. That's exactly what John is talking about. The whole world is under the power of the evil one. Everywhere you go, it doesn't matter if you go to Manchester even, the greatest city on earth, you'll find that it's exactly the same as, as Nottingham or Durham or London or Melbourne or Bangkok. Wherever you go, you find it's the same. People struggle with the same sinful issues. Now this knowledge, knowing this, knowing that this is what the world's like makes us realists. We want to make the world into a better world, don't we? If I ruled the world, I used to sing with Harry Seacombe, if I ruled the world, every day would be the first day in spring. So you're too young to remember the really great songs. We want to make our world into a better place. We long for clean water and we want clean politicians. We want a world where children are safe and property is respected. We'd like a world where men don't read on Twitter that you're skiing and break into your house and, and steal 400,000 pounds of designer goods, <laughs> which happened, you know, those guys this week were put in prison for breaking into John Terry's house because he tweeted, tweeted he was on holiday and skiing somewhere, and they stole 400,000 pounds worth 
of stuff. There was so much to carry that they came back with an angle grinder to try and get in safe. Just a few miles from here. We'd like a world where children are safe and property is respected. And we pray for that kind of world. And we work for that kind of world in our own little world, in our own homes, in our hearts and in our homes. We want to make our little bit of the world a better place. We do so realistically though. And we do so with hope. We do so realistically because we know that the whole world is going to be like this until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and makes it all new. But we do so with hope because one day the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the glory as the waters cover the sea. So we know that we are of God. We belong to that kingdom. The whole world is under the sway of the evil one. We're realistic. We know that we're trying to operate in that fallen world. So that's the second no, uh, that um, we want our behavior to be kingdom-shaped in a fallen world. And then the last one is, we know that your heart must be Jesus-centered. And we know, verse 20, that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one. That is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Now, if I'd been writing one, John, I wouldn't have finished with that last paragraph. Little children, guard yourself from idols. I would have put, cheer up, all things are going to get better soon. <laughs> I'm going to try and explain the whole Bible storyline in four minutes. Are you with me? God created a world in which human beings had free will. They could choose good and they could choose evil. The big question was, would they trust God enough to choose his rules rather than make their own? Temptation came into the world from a spiritual being who became the father of lies. He's called here the evil one. And under his influence, our first parents chose self over God. They chose to worship things in the world and to trust in to put their first hope and trust in things in the world rather than in the God who created them. They became idolaters. And what that was at the beginning of the world in which self-rule and self-everything else would prevail. So the whole, whole world is captive to evil. That's why things are as they are. That's why there's so much pain and suffering and anguish and woundedness and heartache and misery and death. So what was God's master plan? Would he stretch out an arm of power and smash the whole thing and destroy it and start again? What, would, what was God's master plan? Well, he chose to do something remarkable. He chose to overcome evil in the very place where it first triumphed, in a man. One day, there would come another man, a second Adam, who would obey where the first Adam rebelled, who would love the Father, where the first Adam began to love himself, who would protect and glorify his bride, the church, unlike the first Adam who stood by and watched his wife be seduced by evil. 
The second Adam would accomplish the salvation of the world and the defeat of evil by entering into weakness. He would come as an ordinary human being of flesh and blood. He would have to go to the toilet. He'd have to do an ordinary thing. If you cut him, he bled. He'd live an unremarkable life for 30 years. He'd listen to God. He would obey his Father perfectly in every tiny aspect of his life. Everything that Jesus did and thought was all filled with the beauty of purity. Can you imagine a brain where there wasn't a single evil, selfish, impure thought? Everything he did was filled with purity and perfection from beginning to end. He'd listen to God and obey God in every tiny aspect of his life. And then he would allow that perfect body, that lovely life, to become the centre of judgment. On the cross, the great pain that Jesus endured wasn't the physical or emotional or psychological pain. The great pain he endured was the penalty of our sin was placed upon him. He would receive sin's penalty and set billions free by forgiving them and delivering them from the dark side to be adopted into the family of God. That's essentially what verse 20 is saying. We know that the Son of God has come, has given us understanding, and we are in the true one. When you become a Christian, you enjoy a wonderful new status. God takes hold of you. I've done this illustration so many times. Here you are in all your imperfection, in all your sin. And that when you hear and trust the gospel, God takes you and he forgives you and he places you into Christ and you're safe for all eternity by simple faith in Jesus. That's what John is saying. We are in Christ. We are in him. He is the true God and eternal life. Picture the New Testament uses is of the bridegroom and the bride. The two shall become one flesh. You are joined to Jesus forever when you become a Christian. And Christ and his bride will live together in a new heavens and a new earth eternally. Why would you go anywhere else? For life and for meaning, if that's true. Don't do it, says John at the very end. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Don't look for meaning and don't look for life in any other place than in Jesus. Let your little world, your tiny little world, let it be joined eternally to Jesus Christ. Don't let your little world be dominated by the idolatrous idea that, that money, that sex, that holidays, that self-pleasing can give you meaning in life. Don't, don't trust in that idolatrous way of thinking. Let your little world be joined to that mighty world where Jesus is King and Jesus is Lord. We know that our heart must be Jesus-shaped. And that's the end of John, John's first epistle. Let's pray.
Eternal Father, we thank you for the repeated lessons of this remarkable little letter. We know that we can't claim to be sinless, but if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he is the one who paid the penalty for our sin. So we thank you that we, we can have lives that are committed to righteousness and to godly living. Forgive us that we, we, we relapse so frequently. We thank you that uh, you've called us to live in a kingdom that is not like the kingdom of this world, kingdom that is filled with the joy and beauty of Jesus Christ. Help us to learn more and more of that kingdom. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, for uh, calling us to live a life that is shaped internally and externally by who Jesus is, the great King. We thank you that we don't just admire him from a distance. If we trust him, we are in him. Our life is joined to his life, not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. So we bless you and we pray that you would help us to reflect on these things uh, as the day unfolds. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.